When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Daniel Craig makes his final appearance as James Bond today in No Time to Die. So we have a special episode with WTOP's 007 aficionado, Dave Preston, breaking down the best of Bond. This two-hour extravaganza ranks the best Bond actors, best Bond villains, best Bond songs, best Bond gadgets, and the best Bond flicks, including where No Time to Die ranks among the all-time greats in the franchise. Davey, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, you're welcome. As, as someone who has been enjoying the uh, the series for years with family and friends, and uh, it's it, it's really cool to be on here with you and talk about the James Bond series, especially with the release of No Time to Die this week in the U.S., Absolutely. Lots of buzz. And I think it's safe to say that um, after people see this one, everyone will be talking about um, about that movie for sure. And we'll, all right, we'll see where it ranks in the whole uh, right. canon here um, in a little bit. But first, we have some fun categories because all week on WTOP.com, you've been ranking a different Bond category every day of the week. So let's start with on Monday, you did the best Bond actors. Everyone loves debating who's the best Bond over the years. And a lot of it has to do, I think, where, you know, when you grew up, you know, who was your childhood Bond? Um, But let's go through your list in order. So number six, you have George Lazenby. Yes, whom I have actually met. Can we can we edit the picture of the spy museum from a few years ago where I asked not one but two questions and did shake his <laughs> hand? I, what I liked about Lazenby's portrayal in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he's the Australian actor who only did one. It, it's a very sincere portrayal. It's probably the most sincere of any of the actors who has played 007. He wasn't a natural actor. He bluffed his way into the role. There's a movie out, I think, called Becoming Bond that was on Hulu a few years ago. If you have a chance, check it out. It's a scream. And it, it, it talks about his life and not just becoming Bond, but that's the biggest, that's the big focus of that. Uh, he, he, gives a, he gives a decent portrayal and he keeps it somewhat serious. And uh, he's a guy that I wish had done more than one film. And it's a shame on him for deciding that he didn't want to do another movie. And it's a shame on the producers who they offered him, a, I guess, a seven-year contract over 15 years with a lot of restrictions on what he could do when he wasn't playing 007, that he said, I just don't need this. So it's a shame they couldn't have done it because I think if he had, Diamonds Are Forever would have been a much more serious film. You would have had the, seri- you would have had the series more along the lines of the Daniel Craig films that we saw in the 20th, 21st century than a lot of the Roger Moore escapades, which is what I'll call them. It's a shame it didn't happen, but at least we had that one movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and George did a decent job, but you only do one film, you don't get in my top five. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Lazenby would probably, you know, quality-wise, could could be higher on any list, but 
the fact he only did one is is what drops him at the bottom. But um, not a, not not a mere honorable mention. I mean, a very solid movie, which you'll get. To, you know, I know it's one of your favorite Bond movies overall. We'll get to that later. All right, number five then, Timothy Dalton. Similar, I guess, similar in terms of output, uh, in terms of the number of movies he did. But why is he number five? He, he, I think, and I write that on WTOP.com that he may have been the right actor, but he was at the wrong time. You had a decade plus of lighthearted fare with Roger Moore. And here comes this guy who's very serious. He's probably as, he's probably closer to the Bond in the novels than any of the other actors who had portrayed him. He actually read the series, really got deep into the character. And unfortunately, he just, while he, he does give this serious bend to his role, he, it doesn't look like he's having any fun at all. And even Sean Connery, when he was very serious, you always felt like he was having fun on some level, even though he was, he was, he was very serious of portraying 007. So his two movies are kind of just, a, it's, it's like Oliver Cromwell. It's like, okay, you're there for 11 years. There's no monarchy. And we've got two kind of semi-uneven films. And then he moved on. It's a shame they didn't, he didn't do a third he was supposed to do a third, but it was caught up in litigation because United Artists was absorbed by, I think, MGM or something along those lines, that business that has nothing to do with the movie, you know, making aspect of it, but unfortunately has everything to do with it. So unfortunately, he didn't, he, he didn't do a third, but uh, he gave a decent portrayal, but again, not that much better than Lazy. Yes, and his best, we would agree, License to Kill, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Yes, compared yeah. to the other one. All right, all right, and then number four, you have this is uh, Roger Moore. This is um, again, depending when you grew up. Right. Some some people might even have them. I've heard people say when you when Roger Moore died a couple years ago. Oh, he's my number one. Um, and you know, I might even have him a little higher on mine too, just for you know, the spy who loved me was so iconic. But with that skiing intro and all that, right. but um, but you know what? The it's really hard. I, I'm I, I don't envy your position because you know what I mean, like. As I look higher on the list, it's kind of hard to put them above those two. Well, what's tough, Jason, is that now we're to the point where everybody has done at least four films. So everyone really had a chance to grow into the role. Everybody really had a chance to make Bond their own. You could almost say that Dalton and Lazenby borrowed the tuxedo for one or two films, whereas Roger Moore made the tuxedo his own. I will say this about uh, Roger, Sir Roger Moore. The, he was more comfortable in that tuxedo, in that role than anyone else was. He was more cool with the trappings of the role, of what that limited him to do elsewhere than any of the other actors. Right. And he, he, he's a great bunk. He's very charming. He's very light and suave. And he is, it just, it felt like he didn't outwit the villain as much as press a button on a watch or something like that. And uh, it, it, whereas Connery was serious and then would have the wittiest side, it felt like Roger Moore would have the wittiest sides, dispose of the villain, and then have another wittiest side. He, he, I guess his portrayal is a little more frothy than the others. There's a little less of an edge to his portrayal than Brosden and definitely Connery and Craig, who are the most serious and, and down to earth of the two. But you're not, with, Maybe one or two exceptions. If you watch a Roger Moore film, you're going to be entertained. You're going to enjoy yourself. You're not going to be depressed at the end of the movie like you have with a few others in the series. But again, number four, Roger Moore, no shame whatsoever. And I would still watch uh, For Your Eyes Only, which is probably, which is definitely my favorite Roger Moore one. Although The Spy Who Loved Me is perhaps the most entertaining film. If you want to get an idea of 
what a Roger Moore movie was like, you got to see Spy. Yeah, I think The Spy Love Me. Um, and of course, that's the one that Austin Powers was best yeah. with The Spy Who Shagged Me, at least the sequel title. But um, yeah, I, I agree. I think maybe more might be the more the most fun, entertaining Bond, uh, at least on a lighthearted note. And no one can take away the title of, you know, he, the most prolific. I mean, he did more Bonds than any yeah. others. I think with seven, seven. So. Yeah. And you know what? A balanced diet includes dessert too. So Roger Moore's your dessert. <laughs> There's your dessert. All right. Your number three is Pierce Brosnan. Of course, this is, he's the, you know, I always say like, you know, Michael Keaton was my Batman. Pierce Brosnan was my Bond because that's who I grew up with. And then of course the, the Nintendo 64 video game, GoldenEye. I mean, it was all, all, all a piece there um, in pop culture. But I thought Brosnan, while, while some of the movies maybe didn't, uh, um, stack up. He had some really, really good ones and a couple forgettable ones. But in terms of the look and the sound, I thought he looked the part more than just about anybody. He, he I mean, in reality, he might be the most important of the actors to play James Bond from the standpoint of, the, of keeping the series up and rolling because there was there was a six year gap. If he comes out and makes and Goldeneye doesn't work and it's a clunker, 007's gone. I think. The GoldenEye, probably next to The Spy Who Loved Me, and of course, Dr. No, the most important film as far as keeping the series going. Obviously, Casino Royale is also in that link where if it didn't work out, if, you know, it, they probably would have made others at that time. But he really tried, what I liked about Brosnan's portrayal, he tried to bring the toughness of Connery and combine it with the charm of Roger Moore. And I think he pulls it off. It's the reason why he might not be in the top two is because his movies weren't that good uh, compared to the others. He doesn't have a great film in his repertoire. And I, it, it, do you like Tomorrow Never Dies more than Goldeneye? I, I go back and forth with those. Uh, the World Is Not Enough has great elements, but suffers with Christmas Jones. And, and Die Another Day is sadly the typical last movie made by a James Bond actor that you have trouble watching, much like I'm going to throw Diamonds Are Forever in that mix in the official series. I'm going to throw A View to a Kill in that in that mode where you're just like, ooh, it's a shame he had to make this one. It's a shame he couldn't have made a better one, which is why when we start talking about Daniel Craig and where No Time to Die ends, I was pleasantly surprised. For sure, for sure. And, and one final note on Brosnan. I just, I thought it was a smart pick for Bond because you know, yeah. just what a couple years earlier, he'd been getting pelted in the head by Mrs. Doubtfire with a grapefruit, and then he becomes Bond. Uh, I thought I thought he really looked the part, um, which which I didn't in initially say about our number two pick, Daniel Craig. You know, when when he was first cast, I thought, what he doesn't really look like Bond at all. But then when we saw, you know, a his acting chops, but and then the the quality of the actual movies themselves really wow. elevated. Uh, Daniel Craig in the list, which is, uh, I guess, why you have him number two, right? What I like about Daniel Craig is that for the first time since I think George Lazenby had the role, you could say, all right, this Bond will kill someone using his bare hands. He's a, a very tough, very physical Bond. He does run a lot of in his, in his movies, almost like Tom Cruise and all of his films where he seemed to run at the drop of a hat. He gives a very, uh, Daniel Craig gives a very earnest portrayal, really enjoyed uh, his five films. And what kind of makes his Bond special compared to the others is that unlike Roger Moore and Sean Connery, where you could say, you know what, these are two actors playing the same role. Uh, you could almost, you could also make the case that Dalton and Brosnan were 
two actors playing the same agent basically because it's oh it's uh, you know he aged a little bit here or there but you know, what I, what's different about Craig's portrayal is that he is this bond he you see him become an agent you see him you know grow as an agent and then you see him retire and you see him you know depart into the sunset at the end of his five is, is it tetrarch or quintet or <laughs> whatever quintet i think is what we'll call it or something along those lines you actually see a story arc it's almost as though it's a five-part miniseries as opposed to five separate films and i think we had this we may have had this conversation just via email last week after i saw it my, my initial thoughts you could put you could switch many of the other films from some of the other actors and it wouldn't disrupt the continuity for your eyes only could come before the man with the golden gun right. or before the spy who loved me and it's not going to disrupt the storyline or uh, same case with dr no could be after goldfinger but you really couldn't move one movie in front of the other without it disrupting because the bond in each one it's obvious that the daniel craig bond carries the scars of the previous movie with him and i think that's what really makes his portrayal uh kind of cool yeah absolutely i think um perfectly said it's about the continuity it's if you pluck one out it, it messes with the continuity which you couldn't the others could be a little more interchangeable a little standalones but um the daniel craig you could tell that from the very beginning they said that that first one casino royale was was amazing with like two mm. a, a great villain and a well very maybe, good maybe two villains if you want to <laughs> but we'll get yeah. to that later but yeah i i love the fact that it was like they set out to do an origin story and then we saw him grow skyfall is like the crown jewel sort of middle piece and then as you say no time to die that that riding off into the sunset so yeah in terms of like a, a, a self-contained little little arc they they the craig movies um they really they really did tell a, a beginning middle end there and he's very good he's very oh, good yeah. in the role he like there is not there were times when you watched honor majesty's secret service where you're like okay this is the stand-in for sean connery uh or you know timothy dalton you're like oh okay they're trying to go in a different direction once you get into watching Casino Royale and when you watch Daniel Craig, he is James Bond and you don't think otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And then that brings us to number one, which um, it's, you know, sometimes the default answer is that yeah. way because it's the right answer. <laughs> Sean yeah. Connery, you and I, you and I both agree on this. He, he combined the, you know, the, the wit and charm of, of maybe like a Roger Moore, the fun elements with what, whereas Daniel Craig is more of like the, you know, maybe like a, a believable assassin. He could, he could kill you. But right. Sean Connery was sort of that perfect balance, I thought. And, and uh, man, just the, the most iconic, the guy who originates the role has to be number one, right? And I think, you know, he was, he set the blueprint. You, you could see, you could almost make the case that the other guys who followed did little riffs and they took kind of cues and clues from what Sean Connery did in his first five films. And they emphasize their strengths of that whereas Lazenby had the the stunt ability and you know whereas Roger Moore had you know the wit and charm but that was amplified the Timothy Dalton had the seriousness that Sean brought to the role that was amplified uh saying uh, uh, Brosden had a bit of a combination of the wit and but that was amplified a little bit more less of the killer and of course the the cold assassin uh, you had with Daniel Craig that uh, was amplified to the nth degree. Uh, Sean, fantastic. Uh, now, not all of Sean's performances were great. Uh, Diamonds, 
He looked a little bit older than he did in You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice, he, you could make the case that he was mailing it in and not even using proper postage. But Sean Connery at his best was the best Bond. If you look at him, even, even Thunderball, where the series is starting to lose a lot of its awesome creative steam from the first three films, he's still fantastic. And never say never again, when he comes back to the role after 12 years, he not only looks better than he did in the 70s, he's also having a lot more fun in the role. So that was a nice movie for him to end with. And again, there's, I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I, was, I didn't get my driver's license until after I turned 18. I wasn't dating a lot. I wasn't uh, the, the strongest kid, but I could watch a Sean Connery movie and he gets the girl, he drives the awesome car, he beats the bullies and the villains. And I mean, that's, that's yeah, for that, he and, and he's nice to his uh, superiors. Not that I wasn't nice to my superiors, but uh, yeah, Sean Connery was, is, and always will be James Bond. And uh, it, it was awesome to have uh, had him in that role for uh, what, the uh, seven films he did. Oh yeah, it's, it's the, he's the iconic Bond. It's, you know, it's like saying, there's another Indiana Jones other than Harrison Ford. It doesn't ca- happen. And River actually, Phoenix. Sean Connery River was his Phoenix. dad. He was his dad. They cast Bond yeah. as an Indian dad. But yeah. um, but yeah, the famous lines, uh, you know, Bond, James Bond. That was him and Doctor No, a martini, shaken not stirred. That's Sean Connery. You can't divorce the role, uh, yeah. from the or the actor from the character. Um, Connery. Yeah. Is fa- favorite quote from him is uh, in Doctor No when uh, the one of the assistants comes in, one of the underlings of Doctor No, uh, thinks he shot Bond in bed. And Bond has the drop on Bond, you know, has the gun on him and the guy, you know, grabs a gun and tries to shoot him. He's like, God, that's a Smith and Wesson. And you've had your six. And then he pumps him with lead. That's that is Sean's money quote right there. Because, you know, I mean, the thing is, he created a very believable character that was suave, yet very dangerous, uh, serious, yet had a bit of a a lighthearted feel to him as well. And uh, again, it's as you say, the, the default answer is often the right one. And, and yes, Sean's my number one actor in the James Bond series. Absolutely. And of course, in Goldfinger, shocking, positively shocking. <laughs> um, that was a great pre credit sequence. You know, for the next Bond, what we should do is we should rate all the different pre credit sequences. Right. That would Which, be a nice waste of two days. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll get to some of that in the songs. Yeah. But I will say before we move on from, um, the the best actors so sean connery obviously originated the role but i would like to give a shout out to mr Cary grant in um uh north by northwest because i think oh. that sort of set you talking about the blueprint sort of set set the at least on the screen i know ian fleming not was the novel and created him but uh Cary grant north by northwest uh sort of sort of sets the tone for a little bit of bond to come so he was actually i believe considered for the role because he was friends with cubby broccoli one of the producers at the time he was deep into his 50s he didn't want to do a series, so he didn't want to sign on for more than one film. And that's that's one of the, re- and also he was going to cost too much money. They had, I think, even though $1 million in 1961, 62 was a lot of money, they only had $1 million to spend, and he was going to take up a lot of that budget. So he, he, he would have been, Cary Grant would have been a fantastic bond. Absolutely. You know, given, given all, especially when you look at a lot of the early bonds were semi-riffs off of the Hitchcock classics of the fifties. Uh, There's a helicopter chase yeah. that is reminiscent of the uh, North by Northwest crop duster scene. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cross pollination between uh, Hitchcock and 007. 
yeah when you when you guys get done listening or watching this um pull up that that scene when he's approaching the james mason's hideout at mount mount rushmore um you know when he's and Cary grant sneaking up there i believe there's almost like a little hint of the 007 theme then 007 mm-hmm. theme hadn't even done yet right. but um I, I i don't know i noticed a little bit but now we're getting in the weeds but all right let's move on um so tuesday you ranked the best bond villains um and let's let's we're gonna have to start going through these a little quicker and, and as we as you dial that up what's the key with the villain is that they have to be big yet believable in order to be a really good villain. For instance, right. Yafet Kodo uh, played uh, Mr. Big Dr. Kananga. He's very believable, uh, but he's a drug smuggler. And so, I mean, that's, 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 that's not really, that's not really big. I and mean, that's, that's like, small okay, potatoes for Bond. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, for, for 007 to, he's not a worthy adversary for James Bond. So, and the quality of a film uh, in the series, often hinges on how good the portrayal is of James Bond, not just the actor, but how well he does in that role, as we see with, you know, Goldfinger, great, Diamonds Are Forever, bad, same actor as 007, but also uh, the villain, too. If, if you've got a lame villain or a villain who really sucks or the tone is not right, that that kind of suffers a little bit. Uh, I think that's one of the things that Timothy Dalton suffered from is that his first villain, Jodon Baker, is Brad Whitaker, an arms dealer, really falls flat and, and doesn't work. And that really undercuts how good The Living Daylights could have been, which starts off as an interesting film. Great point. Well, you can say that a lot about a lot of movies. I think uh, if the vil- if the villain or the antagonist is it's not always let's say antagonist, but uh, yeah, if they're not always up to snuff, then the, the movie suffers. True. It's not all about the hero. All right. Well, let's hear your top five Bond villains then. So number five, you have Electric King in the world is not enough. A, a, a relatively newer one. Yes, yeah, Sophie Marceau. She was uh, she starts off as the Bond girl and then she becomes the Bond baddie. Spoiler alert. If you've listened, if you haven't seen any of the movies, we are going to be talking about plot lines. We're going to be with with, with the exception of No Time to Die. Uh, spoilers. We'll, we're going to be talking about we're, we will let you know what happens with we'll let you know that Oddjob dies. We'll let you know this, that and the <laughs> other thing. But uh, she, she really gives a nice portrayal and, and she makes that movie work. All, it, 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 the reason why I want to put from time to time, the world is not enough ahead of Tomorrow Never Dies and GoldenEye is her portrayal and just her, the way she embodies that character. And it's nice to have, you know, 20th century, now the 21st century, nice to have uh, a primary female adversary for 007. So she's great in the role and uh, she almost gets Bond in the end. Yeah, that's such a great point. Not, not, she, not, not she goes, not she winds up with them, but she almost gets them, as in shoots them, kills them. Right. Kills him. Exactly. And that marked right that right there, that distinction you just make marks a departure because let's face it. I mean, doing doing this list, that's a good point in, in 2021. It's much different than even making this five, 10, 10 years ago. You know, um, uh, this is a series, the Bond franchise that, you know, you'd think the whole Me Too movement sort of recalibrated Hollywood, uh, we'd like to think. And um, you'd almost think it could even put this particular franchise out of business. I mean, Bond is was, you know, like the, literally famous as the ultimate womanizer. And I think it's going to yeah. force the franchise to kind of move forward. So I like that. I like that you have um, her as number five in, in your villain list. Um, cool. Number four, 
Luis Jordan as Kamal Khan in um, Octopussy. I remember Luis Jordan in um, Max Ophel's Letter from an Unknown Woman, a classic okay. 40s movie. And then uh, Gigi, of course, the Vincent, Vincent Minnelli musical. Um, but uh, why was he such a good villain in Octopussy? Very suave. He's probably, when you look at the Roger Moore movies, he's the only villain, I think, who can out-suave Roger or come into you know, who's in Roger's league. And having read the novels, it, there was, it always felt as though that the villain and Bond, there was a bit of a, you know, I, I guess a bit of a, I guess a, a duel, so to speak, not, not actual duel, but one where they're, you know, showing their social graces to each other. They're competing at the Baccarat table or they're doing right. this, that, or the other thing. And he gives, he, He's very suave. I, I just, and I also like the actor. He, he gives a very, you know, sharp portrayal of uh, Kamala Khan and uh, an Afghan prince. And uh, he, that, he's a more memorable villain than some of the others that uh, Roger Moore dealt with in that era. Great, great pick there for number four. All right, the number three, um, Javier Bardem as Raul Silva in Skyfall. Um, man, off the heels of Javier, Javier Bardem was such a good baddie. Of course, yeah. we all he's done a lot of great stuff. Of I course, mean, no, the Coen Brothers, No Country for Old Man, Anton Chigurh, yeah. call, call it Frendo, um, with that little, you know, whatever cow killer gun thing. Man, that right. he, he was terrifying in that movie. Um, but here in Skyfall, I, I agree with you. I mean, a, a top three villain for sure. And we, he, again, it's similar to going off course from what has been the standard stock bill. And we've got a ton of those in the series from, I go back to Emilio Largo uh, in Thunderball, who's the guy with the eye patch, who's number two, who right. is, you know, he has, he has a plan that he's going to work on and this, that, the other thing, or Stromberg and the spy who loved me, another stock villain that, okay, he's a bad guy, world domination. And Raul Silva is a former secret service agent. So he's akin to Sean Bean in, uh, in, in GoldenEye where it's a mirror image of 007. And it's, it, it's what could have happened to James Bond had just things gone a little bit differently because you know we, we look at our lives and a lot of us are two or three great decisions away from somewhere and two or three bad decisions away from somewhere else. And the, uh, this, Opposite number of 007 is that guy. And he, his plan actually works. He winds up killing him in the end. So even though he dies, you know, he's, he was successful. We, we have to give him, we have to give him a check mark on that on, on the report card. And it doesn't hurt that when you've got an actor that good playing that role, who can go toe to toe with Daniel Craig and really make you squirm at the right moments, make you sit on the edge of your seat, make you wonder what the heck is going on. And then realizing that, there was a plan. It, it doesn't hurt to have a guy of his caliber, you know, in that role, making and selling that bad guy. Oh, yeah. Deliciously evil in that movie, for sure. That always raises the stakes when you got a, a villain like Javier Bardem in Skyfall. Um, directed by Sam Mendes, no less. Um, great flick. All right. Yeah. Num number two. Uh, <laughs> I should have said that. Who does number two work for? <laughs> yes. um, Telly Savalas as Ernst Stavro Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, I'm, I'm quoting Dr. Evil a lot here, but that's because, you know, A, I'm a huge Austin Powers fan. And Mike Myers was hilarious in that. But B, because a lot we wouldn't have such a, a fun character, you know, spoofing all these villains without a great villains like uh, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. 
And what's and, and we're just to expand on that. Uh, Blofeld over the years has been played by a wide array of different uh, actors. There have been a lot of different interpretations. The first two movies he was in, you never saw his face. He was behind, you only saw him from the back or you saw lines over his face. That was uh, uh, for much with Love and Thunderball. Uh, the, I believe Eric Pullman voiced him in the first film, may have done so in the second. They didn't keep great records back then. There was the rumor that Joseph Wiseman, who played Dr. No, Who's an underrated villain when you think of, yeah. you know, your, your, but he's also your stock standard, you know, villain. Okay, this is a bad guy and he's got some bad plans. He voiced him in Thunderball, from what I understand. When they finally pulled the curtain back, it was going to be this Czech actor, Jan Verek, who sadly looked like Father Christmas. They got rid of him and they brought Donald Pleasance in for You Only Live Twice. And a lot of people right, maybe remember Pleasance. He was in Halloween. He was in oh, a yeah. ton of other movies as well. He was in The Eagle Has Landed. He was in The Great Escape too, right? Yes, yes, yep. yes. So, I mean, he's, he's, he was a fantastic and very prolific actor back in the day, passed about 25 or 26 years ago. The same year that Telly Savalas did. So that was kind of creepy for a big oh, wow. Bond fan and wondering what was going to happen to Charles Gray. But uh, Mike Myers' portrayal of Dr. Evil is spot on and it is an homage to Donald Pleasance as Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. What I didn't like about him in You Only Live Twice, he's not as strong a character as, say, Telly Savalas is. Savalas is diabolical and he also has a certain moxie to him that the other Blofelds do not. He actually goes skiing and chases Bond. And he's believable. You, if you know, I, I wouldn't. Uh, the Blofeld of uh, Donald Pleasance, I wouldn't, you know, think that I wouldn't be comfortable with him being outside, you know, with, with, without a jacket on while right. I'm skiing. And <laughs> his his plan is diabolical. Also, he reigns in the performance. I think you could almost say that uh, Pleasance's performance is a tiny bit over the top, but that's it. It works in that film, but. My Blofeld is diabolical, but he's not a crazy dude. And he's focused on the matter at hand. And that's what makes uh, Telly Savalas' Blofeld my favorite of the bunch. They did have other actors who played Blofeld. Uh, Max von Sydow uh, was uh, him in a minor cameo-ish role in Never Say Never Again. Doesn't show up much. He still has the cat, even though it's not an Eon series. <laughs> he still has the cat. Christoph Waltz plays him in Spectre and in No Time to Die. And he's okay, but there's a little too much Dougie Evil in his character, <laughs> uh, for that matter. And if you've seen the third Austin Powers movie, you know exactly what I mean, if you've seen yeah. Spectre too. And Charles Gray was probably the biggest misstep. Uh, they went, There was a different actor. Uh, well, Connery came back to the series, so they felt they didn't need to bring Savalas back. Instead of going with Pleasance again, they went in a completely different direction. They made Blofeld British. They gave him hair. They made him a little foppish. And you're not threatened by that Blofeld the same way you were by Telly Savalas. So that's why Savalas is my number two Blofeld. Merry Christmas, 007. That's his money line. Oh, yeah. And there's just the image of, you know, stroking that cat. And well, yeah. long before Mr. Bigglesworth. <laughs> yes. But um, and uh, yeah, it's it's it really there's was. It, it really was. It, we would not have Dr. Evil without or my my everyone remembers, um, you know, um, uh, one million dollars. But my favorite Dr. Evil line is um, is uh, my father would go around making outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. 
beautiful. That, that's actually a great scene right there with Carrie Fisher as the uh, therapist. But uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's amazing how there have been so many different spins of Blofeld over yeah. the. And what's kind of interesting about that is that uh, Ian Fleming, the writer of the novels, gave Blofeld May twenty eighth, nineteen oh eight, as his birthday, which is Ian Fleming's or was Ian Fleming's birthday. Oh so, wow! Nice little, little bit. Of, the more yeah. you know. The more you know, knowing's half the battle. All right. Well, um, as iconic as we just built Blofeld up, I mean, he, he could easily be number one. But again, the default answer, I think, is the right one here. You got to go with Goldfinger. Yes. And, you know, let's also tip our hats to those who assisted our villains. And I, what I mean by that is the minor villains and the henchmen. And we had this debate six years ago, Jason. What's the difference between the two? I think one is salaried and the other is hourly. I could be wrong. <laughs> there may you may need to go on when to work in order to request time off, or <laughs> the other you just fill out a spec slip or something like that. But some of the great henchmen, uh, you think of Jaws uh, from Moonraker and The Spy Who Loved Me, much better in The Spy Who Loved Me than he was in Moonraker. You think of Red Grant in uh, From Russia with Love, who has the best one minute and 42 second fight in the history of cinema with oh, yeah. uh, 007. You think of other, you know, Mayday from A View to a Kill, who helps kind of salvage what could have been the worst movie in the series. It's not my favorite, but she makes it at least a little bit more entertaining than it could have been. And uh, Aja is the uh, blueprint for uh, Silent Henchman. He hits the right notes as opposed to some other silent henchmen we have seen over the years. There was a guy named Stamper who really sucked. He was in Tomorrow Never Dies. But, uh, you know, odd job with the hat and just you know, just the menace that when he fights Connery in Fort Knox, you actually think he's going to kill Sean Connery. You think that James yeah. Bond is going to die. And as the series progresses, you don't feel that as you, you don't feel that that Bond is in as much grave danger. But right there, Fort Knox, you think God Job's going to take his head off. Um, but we talk about the best villains. Best villain remains Auric Goldfinger. He loves gold. He loves only gold. Only gold for Shirley Bassey. And she's exactly <laughs> right. He exudes evil. He's He's got this completely awesome diabolical plan that, uh, that you know, he's, got, he's not just going to rob Fort Knox, but he's going to blow it up. And I believe... Right around now, 2021, is when his gold, is when the U.S. gold supply would no longer be radioactive. So it's amazing how <laughs> long, -term long plan. Long term destroyed <laughs> the U.S. economy. He's fantastic. Gert Frobe plays him, although his voice is dubbed, but he has his mannerisms down. Uh, the way he looks at the gold bar when Sean Connery drops it during the gold, or during the golf match is fantastic. The way he gets upset when he loses at cards because of Connery or golf, because of Connery, the way he presents Operation Grand Slam, or the way he talks about his monologue, this is gold. I, it is my life. I love it. Anything I, everything I do goes towards uh, increasing my supply. And and he's he's fantastically evil, and he's evilly fantastic, and that's why he's my number one. And not to mention, you know, the the most iconic villain line of a Bond movie. You know, do you expect me to talk? No, Mister Bond. Talk? I expect you to die with the laser yeah. trained on him. Um, I just yeah. iconic, iconic, iconic stuff. Goldfinger, number one. All right. And then Wednesday, you ranked uh, the best Bond songs, um, which this was a case where the default wasn't number one. You made a last second substitution yeah. of, of, a, of a personal favorite. But before we get to there, uh, start well, with number 10. You go with Tomorrow Never Dies, number 10. 
Yeah, I, I was tempted to put Billie Eilish's No Time to Die. It's, it, it's a nice song. And, the, and just because it doesn't make the top 10 doesn't mean it's a bad song. There are a lot of nice songs in the series that didn't make it. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever is, is a nice one. I know that's one of your favorites. Um, that one that one was kept around by, uh, I guess it was featured in like a Kanye West song. So I think that, had, yeah, that, guess, that um, reached a new generation. Yeah. From Russia With Love was actually the original Bond song. Uh, it, it was an instrumental in the opening credits, and they had this guy named Matt Monroe sing it in the as there as uh, Bond and Tatiana Romanova are in Venice, uh, uh, Sam at the end of the movie. And uh, Matt Monroe wound up actually covering Yesterday because the Beatles did not release it as a single in Great Britain. They released it in the U.S. Hit number one. He did a cover of Yesterday, I believe, uh, way back when. Huh. So a little tie between Bond. And the Beatles once again, but uh, yes, uh, what tomorrow never dies. Uh, Cheryl Crow, I've I was early to the Cheryl Crow party. Um, love her voice, love her, love her, just love loved her vocal feel on, on her pre Bond stuff. And this one, it sounds like she's just smoked like two packs of those Turkish cigarettes that Sean Connery was hooked on. She's had maybe three martinis, and unfortunately. It's not the Vesper recipe. It's it's dirty, and there's actually chunks of olive in there. And, and she gives a fantastic portrayal. She sips, she sips, and then she spills the glass. And uh, that's 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 why that's my number ten because she freaking rocks that. Awesome. And then number nine, you have Nancy Sinatra's "You Only Live Twice." Yes, our long distance dedication, and we're we're not coming out of an up tempo record talking about a dog perishing. But uh, this is one of the few movies where. They begin the song with the title and they end with the, the song with the title. The key to a Bond movie song being awesome is when in doubt, say the name of the title of the movie multiple times. You got it. It's, it's a rite of passage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some it's of tough. them don't. Octopussy, you can't really do that. You can't really go there. Yeah. But Spectre didn't say the title. Spectre didn't say the title either, did it? No, I know. And we actually did a riff on that where we it's it rhymes with so many words. How do you not have Spectre? <laughs> he's a protector. He's a defector. He's now, what, a elector. What was was that? Spectre. Was that Sam Smith writing on the wall? I mean, that Sam was actually Smith. a good, a really good song. I was actually covering the Oscars backstage mm -hmm. when he won for that. But yeah. you're right. I'm like, that's a good song. But at the end, you're like, wait a minute, I didn't say Spectre. <laughs> it's a good song. I mean, the thing is, a good song is not necessarily a good Bond song. Right. You Only Live Twice is not necessarily a good song. Some call it rather hackish. There are a lot of bad songs, but it's a good Bond song. Uh, also, I think, it, as we're talking about best song, it's not just the song, but it's also the credits that you see and what uh, Maurice Binder helmed that for years. And here he really gives... And uh, an, an Eastern Asian feel and a vibe to it, and there's webs, and it's just it's just so well done that visually it takes you in to the song, and the song rewards you, and it's just and you see volcanoes, it's just it's a you're what is also key to a Bond theme song is it gets you out of the pre-credit sequence and it gets you ready for the movie, and you only live twice does that, and Nancy Sinatra does a fine job. Um, it was fresh. She had done uh, these boots are made for walking and something stupid uh, in the last year or two. So she was the logical choice as the hot singer of the time. And she delivers. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, you raise a good point. It's not just the song. It's the opening title sequences, which yeah, I the know visuals could be great. Yeah. 
yeah oh yeah which i guess sort of picked up on some of like what salt bass had done earlier in like the cardboard cutout kind of black cutout thing um and then just brought it into a new generation for multiple generations and in fact a lot of people i know people that just go to buy movies just to see that sequence and then the rest is just gravy um all right number eight sheena easton for your eyes only and a a great yes oh and fantastic and and of course pre-internet uh (laughs) there was a stretch when i thought that sheena easton was sheila e and shirley e and no they're they're completely different people but pre-internet you don't know (laughs) Um, yeah. And again, uh, you know, visuals are great. She actually shows up in the pre-credits in the, in the credit sequence, uh, the first Bond singer to do so. And, uh, just, just a nice song that, uh, and, and her voice is fantastic. And after a lot of the rigmarole of the seventies movies where you had Moonraker, Jaws had a girlfriend and Roger Moore doing a lot of cheesy stuff. This kind of, as I write on WTOP.com, this takes us safely back to shore. So thank you, Shirley. It, uh, uh, Sheena. Sheena. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank thank, you. Yeah. I don't know. Who, yeah, exactly. Shirley. Thank you, Sheena. Don't call and, me Shirley. Uh, she's coming exactly. up on, higher, on the, higher on the list for sure. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. And then number seven, uh, I feel like I got to hold, hold the note when I say Thunderball. Yeah. Rumor is Tom Jones passed out while singing Thunderball at the end. Although, you know, rumors are rumors. I mean, when you wear when you wear pants that tight, it's tough to hold the notes. And this is this is, I guess, this is a standard Bond theme song from talking a little bit about the villain, doing some stuff with verses, doing this and that. Hey, on the screen, Thunderball shows up, so I say the title. And then I do some more stuff and then the title again. And then there's the bridge and then there's the title with the long fade out. And it was parodied by Weir- Weird Al Yankovic uh, for the movie Spy Hard, uh, which if you have a chance to hop on YouTube, it is a spot. On- it's it's better than anything Austin Powers did as far as, uh, you know, uh, spoofing the Bond theme songs. It's fantastic to the point where Weird Al's head blows up because he tries to hold the last <laughs> note. But uh, yeah, again, Tom Jones brings a lot of sass, brings a lot of sexiness to this song and uh again the visuals are great too this is this is peak era bond where the stuff was fantastic it was what you were looking for but it was still kind of new so not overplayed gotta love tom jones Mm -hmm. delilah is eminently singable and it's not unusual but thunderball i mean yeah it's he's perfect fit all right number six um, you know what, man, uh, this is where it's going to get a little, I've agreed with most of your picks, but this is where it gets a little dicier. But, uh, number six is Carly Simon's nobody does it better from the spy who loved me. Um, uh, man, I might actually have that higher, like in like my top three, maybe, but me, okay. I might be a little biased because, um, I, I got to see um, Marvin Hamlish, who, who, you know, wrote the music for Carly Simon to sing. Um, right. He wrote that theme and the whole score for that movie for um, The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, I, saw him perform, I saw him perform live at, what was it? It was in Silver Spring at like the Discovery yeah. Channel building. I don't even know. But either way, it's just that perfect, you know, after the opening ski sequence when the the British flag parachute opens up and then right. you, then the song hits. I, I don't know. It's, per, it's perfect perfection for me. But why do you got it here at six? I, 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 it's not that I think that there are five songs better than I, 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 I think it's a fantastic song. And I think what I like about this song is that it came after two up-tempo numbers. You had Live and Let Die, which is a great song. That'll be further up on our countdown. But all, then they had uh, one of the major missteps, which was The Man with the Golden Gun, that Lulu sang it 
And I think they wrote that by saying, hey, you know what? If Paul McCartney can do an up-tempo rocker and have verses that are kind of flimsy, anybody can do it. No, not anybody can do it. Only Mac can. And this was this helped make the Bond series get back on track. The pre-credit sequence that you mentioned, uh, that it had a lot of stunts, and then a great song sung by a female artist. This 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 kind of sig- signaled to me that Big Bond is back. And uh, I mean, she gets it's. It's not that uh, she. It's not that the, the uh, that nobody does it better is a bad song. Is this that there are five others that I really enjoy more than it? But uh, you could easily play this, you know, in the number three, two, or one spot, and I wouldn't be completely upset. Absolutely. Well, let's get to your top five then. Um, Paul McCartney with Wings, uh, "Live and Let Die," um, yeah. an iconic song all on its own. Um, I know covered by Guns N' Roses as well. It's one of those songs that has become so famous as a song that it, hard to believe people might even forget that it was a Bond theme, but there it is. I mean, it was, it has got to be top five. Well, and I think one of the reasons why a lot of people forget that it was a Bond theme is that Live and Let Die is kind of a forgettable Bond movie. Right. When, when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, it was uh, Moore's debut, not one of his better efforts in my opinion. And this song moves, as I it feels like he's writing on like the back, like he, like he's writing on a coffee cup, the lyrics and he's just, it's slapdash, but the lyric, but the lyrics fit. And it's, it's, it, it just, the movie, uh, the, the music really rocks and it gets you in gear for the film, which is what a Bond movie should do. And Paul McCartney, you can't deny dude's genius. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, this is why that's, uh, you know, as, as high as it is, number five. Um, and it's, again, visuals are great with the uh, the snakes and the skeletons and stuff like that, the whole voodoo thing. And uh, a great beginning to the Roger Moore era when you think about it. Yeah, and a, a cool song, you know, Paul McCartney's a legend, but a cool, cool way it opens so, you know, subdued and, you know, slower and even some of those, you know, you did, you know, you did. And then, I mean, it, it really kicks. I mean, it's a, it's People a got on him for saying that, you know, you say in this ever-changing world in which we live in, it's like, you, you just said that. It's like, allow me to, allow myself to introduce myself kind of thing. But it's like, <laughs> who cares? It's a great song. It's a fantastic beat and you can dance to it. That's it's- why it's number five on our survey case. It is great. All right. Number four is you have Adele Skyfall. Um, that won the, won the actual Oscar for best song right. that year. And, you know, man, again, it's it's all interchangeable at this point, but I might even have that at number two or maybe like a one. Maybe I, I might even have it uh, buying for the number one spot. I thought it was so good in terms. I thought it did what Goldfinger did for its era for um, the, the Craig series. Um, but can't go wrong with number number four as well. Why why Adele here? What, what makes it? Well, it's, I, I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's it's not my favorite of the Craig era in the 21st century, but it, it is a standard in, in, in a way that uh, the other one that we'll mention in just a bit is not um, because it's got the title and it just, it's, <laughs> it just, and, and Adele just, I mean, again, you, they're not going with second stringers here. They're going with the elite of the elite. And I think that's what separates uh, this from maybe the writing is on the wall. I'm not a, I'm not a huge uh, Sam Smith guy, I am a huge Adele person. I and the way you know, my only quibble is that they waited 50 seconds to get into the song before she said "Skyfall," which did not match when it came up on the uh, screen. Because you got to have 
When Shirley Bassey says Goldfinger, that shows up. When Tom Jones says Thunderball, boom, <laughs> it's up there. It's not rocket surgery, guys. It's brain science. <laughs> nice flip there. Um, but we, we, you got to, you have to give her credit while you're breaking yeah. it down. Um, at least the songwriting that it opens by saying this is the end is the first yeah. line of the song. So that's kind of interesting. But, but oh, yeah, yeah, when it when it when it kicks in, I mean. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, it the the opening graphics. I remember um, what was it? Almost like I think he had just plunged underwater. Is that right? And there's like you just you just gotten well as as happens when you're out in the field. You just gotten a shot off of a train and fell into the water. <laughs> so yeah, I remember he's like just, sink, just another day at the office. He's just sort of sinking, similar yeah. to actually that to um what Moby did with that James uh, Jason Bourne when he's falling underwater in Jason right. Bourne, but similar to yeah. Bond series, I guess the Bourne series. But uh yeah, it's that slow sinking. But then when that's at the sky fall when that hits uh yeah it's What's, bond songs yeah. don't get much better um What's but, great about, what what is great ahead. about her uh singing of this song is that when the song ends you're not ready for it to be at to end you want to hear adele sing for another five minutes or so <laughs> yeah exactly yeah totally see why she won the oscar for that you know a lot of these Bond songs are famous, but rarely did they actually take the gold um, and, and Skyfall did it for Adele. Um, all right. And then you, uh, funny enough, you have another a different Daniel Craig theme song. Uh, one slot higher here at number three um, from Casino Royale. You know my name by the late, great, legendary Soundgarden frontman, Chris Cornell. Oh. Love that dude's voice. Why did oh. you pick this at number three? Because it's a roller coaster and you hop on and he, it, it, it just moves in a certain way after. The, and it's a lot of times I think a really good Bond song is set up by a very good pre-credit sequence. Uh, in Casino Royale, Bond shoots, he gets his two kills and it just, you, ju you jump right in there. And it's, it's just, an, again, as I mentioned, it's a roller coaster. It's like you're on a rocket ship to the moon. And the visuals are fantastic. You mentioned, you know, Saul Bassish or um, or Mad Menish type, uh, you right. know, uh, visuals. Even though this preceded Mad Men by a few what, years, it's what would you call a, that? Like a like it's almost like paper cutouts of a, of a person. In, yeah. Uh, yes. I, different different style of animation. I, I that I mean I, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, but just you you're locked in to it. And you're enjoying it and you're seeing, oh, the different cast, oh, Jeffrey Wright, oh, this, uh, uh, Judy Dench's M and this, and you, you lo you're loving the visuals and you're hearing the, the words and the music. It, it just, it really, I will say this early and often, the Bond series, the movies are collaborative efforts all the way from uh, Covey Broccoli and uh, Harry Saltzman, uh, all the way down to, uh, you know, wh whomever is dubbing a voice and, you know, or whoever's, you know, doing the, the tiniest thing. And the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts with uh, You Know My Name. And it's just a fantastic finish when you see Daniel Craig's face. It's 007, 07. Oh, he's now licensed and this, that, the other thing. And it really works. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, oh gosh, I, I can't say enough good things about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. And then number two, um, which you have, uh, which is probably my number one, which is Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. Um, man, talk about 
easily the most iconic um bond song and and the opening sequence too where you know you have you know all the the women painted gold you know it's it's sort of previewing the the dastardly deeds that the villain you know we're, we're terrified of the villain based on just that credits but man the way i mean we also mentioned that she sang diamonds are forever but this is the iconic one um he's the man with the midas touch uh, why, why do we got number two uh, I, I, because I, and this is just the audio guy in me, the mix is a little high. Uh, when, when you listen to it, it's just, it, it's something up with the mix that it just doesn't sound as great from that point, but you can't go wrong with this. This is the signature James Bond movie theme. It talks about the character. It talks about the bad guy. It lets you know why he's bad. And I mean, he does love gold. I mean, it's just, you're not, you're not, you're not bringing up anything new, you know, during the movie. And Shirley Bassey is, you know, she sang three Bond themes more than anyone else. She is, and she's still alive. She's, uh, you know, she and Tom Jones, both from Wales too. An interesting uh, side note there, but she was, I, I, it was with a lot of hesitation that I moved her down to number two in 2015. This was the number one song in whenever we do the countdown to the next Bond movie, she might be number one again. So uh, no quibbles with this being on that, uh, on that elite level of Bond themes. But when you hear themes throughout the years from Bond movies, they are always measured up to Goldfinger. And sometimes they fall flat. Sometimes they actually uh, are up there. Yeah. It's to me, it's to me, it's my number one because it, it really, it just, it hits you in the face right from the start. You know, that like that wailing. And um, if, if anyone, if there's any movie buffs out there, that that intro part before she starts singing, but that purely instrumental part um, is used on a loop during one of my favorite montages. This guy, Chuck Workman, did like, I think he made it in like the early 90s to celebrate 100, oh. 100 years of, of Hollywood movies. And um, and uh, they use that theme like as a, a music bed under all these famous clips of all these movies <laughs> we love from, you know, West Side Story to Jaws and everything. But to hear that Goldfinger theme under it, it really sells it. All right, but but you, sir, um, most people would have that number one and you, you know, as is on making lists, sometimes you know and from year to year you, you know let, let's go a little different route yeah. and go with like a, a personal favorite you know maybe it might not be the objective or mainstream or whatever but you went with duran duran of you to a kill because i know you sir love this song and you want to hold it up so people say well wait a minute i'm gonna go check that song out now <laughs> you know it was a movie that just, it was a it was a song that deserved a much better movie jason before we do that a couple of honorable mentions and one dishonorable mention the dishonorable mention we already talked about the up-tempo song that was not any good, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. The, I guess, uh, the ballad that doesn't really work is All Time High. From Octopussy, Rita Coolidge sings it. And it, it sounds like it came from like a Hallmark holiday film. It just, it makes you want to go to sleep. So that is our ballad that is not awesome. Two instrumentals of note. Um, the first Bond movie, Dr. No, was actually instrumental, but... From Russia with Love had a great opening sequence. The first Bond movie that had the, uh, I guess, the silhouettes of the gypsy dancers and the credits over them really kind of gets you going. Uh, again, an instrumental. And then Honor Majesty's Secret Service had an instrumental uh, for, there was a, a romantic song later in the film by Louis Armstrong, We Have All the Time in the World. But the instrumental uh, theme that gets you into OHMSS 
showing clips of previous Bond films really ties that film into the series as well. So those are my two honorable mentions. Uh, you want uh, the um, A View to a Kill, the first Bond theme to hit number one back in 1985. I want to say Nobody Does It Better hit number two. Goldfinger may have hit number three. Um, same with uh, Live and Let Die. But Love Me, Duran Duran. This is uh, Duran Duran at their peak. And these guys, unlike maybe previous writers of Bond movie themes, these are guys who grew up knowing, only knowing a world that had that James Bond occupied. These guys, because they're as they, I don't know exactly how old Simon LeBon is, but I don't think he was 20 in the 1960s. You know, he's, <laughs> he, he, these guys were young enough to have grown up with Bond. And so for them to present their spin and what they thought a Bond movie theme should be like, fantastic. And it, it's sinister and it's it's got you know a little bit of everything and it sets the credits up. And it's one of the best things about a rather subpar Bond movie. So uh, I enjoyed it. I love the music video that takes place on the Eiffel Tower. The music video is actually more entertaining than the actual film. Wow, there you go. And first number one, nice. Well, you know what I just realized before we move on? We're both wrong. It's not your view to a kill or my goldfinger. It, we're both wrong. The actual best Bond theme is the very first one with their instrumental, the gun barrel instrumental, oh, right? Yeah, okay. Monty Norman or who is it? John Barry? Who, yes. Who yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that is the iconic theme that is sampled. But for for our purposes of this list, it had to be a, a song that was was sung. So uh, that is why yes. it is not here. I hope so. I don't want to have to go back and work for eight more hours. <laughs> well, we had to give shout out to the the yeah. OG, which is that that iconic Bond theme, man. The, dun, 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 that one. And, and, yeah, and, you, and you see it worked in in other themes as well throughout the years. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's. It is a signature, you know, like the Star Wars theme. The James Bond theme is something you hear, you know, da 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 da. You're like, oh, okay, there's a Bond theme going on. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, definitely shout out to that. Um, all right. Well, then Thursday, you ranked um, the best Bond gadgets. Um, let's stick with the top five here. Number yeah. five, you have um, that fancy little, what was it like a briefcase from, from, from Russia with Love? Attaché case. Attaché case. Christmas Thank present. You. Yes, it's, it's it's the attaché case that Bond uses uh, on, when he's on uh, his mission in Istanbul and then on the Orient Express. And this was really in effect the first gadget. In Doctor No, they give him a new gun, the Walther PPK, but it's nothing really special outside of the fact that it's a new gun and it's not a lady's weapon. Is Major Boothroyd said, a different actor than the guy Desmond Llewellyn who actually wound up playing Q throughout the bulk of the series. I think he had 17 or 18 portrayals of Q uh, before he passed, unfortunately, in the late 90s, Desmond Llewellyn. But the attache case, and he's shown the different things, whether he's got a gun sight, he's got you know bullets, he's got a, a, a throwing knife, uh, gold sovereigns, tear gas canister, that when, when the attache case is opening correctly, it you know, it explodes. And what happens throughout the course of the movie, he winds up using a different aspect of that attache case throughout the course of the movie. And that's, I think, what separates it from a lot of the other gadgets he gets that are just one note things, even the car and Goldfinger. He uses once and then he, you don't see it for the second half of the movie. Although, you know, he, 
uses it, it's in a fairly short sequence and some of the other things that he uses. Uh, but here he uses different aspects and he has to rely on his wits as well. I'm going to preface the fact that I'm not really a gadget guy. I what I prefer about the Sean Connery bonds is that he more than often uses his wits and his fists to get out of situations, whereas Roger Moore would just press a button on his coffee cup and blow up somebody. So this, right. in my opinion, is the perfect uh, you know gateway gadget for us because you get a chance to see a little bit of uh, of how a tool that he uses in the field. And he uses each item when it's absolutely necessary, saving his life. Absolutely. And then uh, number four, coming in one slot higher, you have the little Nelly gyrocopter from You Only Live Twice. Yes, yeah, some people don't like this. So there's a lot not to like about You Only Live Twice. And <laughs> when I say not like, we love all the, when you love the Bond movies as much as one does, you'll nitpick little things here or there. It's a great little gyrocopter. And it, it, the, again, uh, Q meets him on location. They go over what this thing can do. He takes it into battle. Or he doesn't, he's, he's just doing surveilling stuff. Then all of a sudden, four helicopters show up and he just he uses each of the tools shown to him, uh, you know, five, 10 minutes earlier to dispose of the Spectre helicopters. It, every so often during maybe one of the Roger Moore films, or uh, whether it, uh, I think Brosnan maybe did it once or twice he'll be cornered and he'll use something that you weren't told about by Q. And that's kind of one of the, one of the keys to having a gadget is Q's got to tell you about it. And if Q doesn't tell you about it, you're really kind of cheating there. 007. You need to know right. what he has at his disposal because then you'll say, Hey, he's got, he's got this, he can use that. So, and it's, and you only live twice is a beautiful film too, shot in Japan. And the scenes where little Nellie's with the other helicopters are absolutely fantastic. Good point. We like to see Q introduce it, the old set up the check yeah. gun and then use it later. <laughs> um, and that that gyrocopter could do just about anything, right? What, what did it have? Yeah. Wasn't it like mines and flamethrowers and all, missiles? It, yes, it had mines, flamethrowers, missiles. I think it even had a razor for rocket. I mean, yeah, you could cave. <laughs> all right. And then number three, th I agree, this has to be in the top three the um, amphibious Lotus Espirit. Uh, and yes. from the, the spy who loved me, we all, you know, we've all been out driving in the car and you drive by a lake or something and you thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if this thing could convert into an, a, a, yeah. a submersible underwater vehicle? But uh, Roger Moore got to do that. Yeah. And it, and, and again, uh, it's, it involves a chase scene. Jaws and all the other bad guys are chasing him. And uh, uh, gosh, who was uh, Agent Triple uh, X, Barbara Bach, the future uh, Mrs. Ringo star. Um, scoreboard drummers there for everybody. Paul might have gotten the song, but Ringo got the Bond girl as they would have. And they're still married to this day, gosh, 40 years later. Um, but he uses each of the aspects that he uses the car. It's there are some elements of obviously some elements of fantasy in it, but in, in many ways it's oh, it's a realistic, oh, yes, if the car can do X, it can do Y. And uh he has the missile that blows up a helicopter. I think Naomi was the henchwoman who meets her end right there. And uh, it, it, it adds a certain zip to a chase scene that we hadn't seen in the series for some time. Absolutely. Uh, iconic gadget and vehicle all in one. Um, all right. Number two, the mobile phone with the upgrade from Tomorrow Never Dies, a Brazen device. 
Yes. Is this the one where he is able to drive his car with it? I think, or something like that. <laughs> I, yeah, it's like a remote control, and then yeah, you can, yeah. you can do so, it. There's, I mean, again, it's a bunch. It's a bunch of stuff, like a stun gun and fingerprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's it is. Hey, you know what? I I hope that there was unlimited texting too. Although in the nineties, you probably got he probably got popped for everything. Her Majesty's Secret Service not pleased about that. But yeah, I mean, it, what's nice about these gadgets is that a lot of them are fun. And a lot of them are things that are part of our everyday lives. Like, you know, I don't have a, uh, a Lotus, but I do have a car and it can be tricked out. I do see helicopters. I do have a, a briefcase that can do things. And it's like, oh, a cell phone. Yeah, it can do all this crazy stuff. So, you know, a, a nice addition. And, uh, you know, it's one of the more realistic gadgets that uh, existed in the Brosnan universe. And you had a lot of ridiculous ones. Yep, absolutely. And I think it kind of, it, like you said, it, it, it was married and matched to to its era, like that late 90s, early into the 2000s, just as most people were just starting to get cell phones, you know, and we're all trying to figure out T9, you know, texting and, and their, their Brosnan is with this phone that can do a million right. cool things. All right. And then number one, topping your Bond gadget list is the Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger, um, the most iconic vehicle that was ever in the series, right? Well, and then it uh, it enjoyed a rebirth in the Daniel Craig era, um, and it, it uh, again it's it's the signature car. It is the car that uh, you think of. And what's interesting all, along those lines is that in the Bond of the novels had a Bentley. He drove a Bentley, so it's you know a little bit different. But uh, yeah, it's it's got everything from the uh, the oil slick to the machine guns to the little thing that. Uh, that uh, causes the blowout of uh, Tilly Masterson's uh, wheels. And, uh, you know, if you ever have somebody in your car telling you, annoying the <laughs> Jesus out of you, you got that ejector seat so they can get the heck out of the car. Who doesn't? I'm sure a lot of people have driven in traffic or have been on long road trips where you might be getting lost and you're hearing something from the back seat and you're like, don't I wish I had one of those things that I could just boom, move them. And it's, and again, it's, it's used in a great uh, chase scene um, uh, a little bit on the open road uh, with 007, but uh, also in that uh, cramped uh, complex of, of Goldfinger's uh, headquarters. So, uh, you know, the, uh, what's the Hitchcock thing, confinement and, and a struggle and to see him drive around streets and alleys and stuff like that in a tiny area is uh, pretty cool too. So that is my number one, uh, you know, Aston Martin, I think, got a big boost from the Bond series because uh, it's one of those cars that, uh, you know, it's needs no explanation or needs no introduction, but we'll give it one. Oh, yeah. It's got him. It's arguably the most famous car in movie history with the well, maybe like the DeLorean and Back of the Future right. where you had like Steve McQueen and Bullet. There's there's been some good cars, but this is probably the coolest of the cool cars, the Aston Martin. True. All right. Well, Without further ado, this is what everyone's been waiting for. The best Bond flicks, um, including where the newest one, No Time to Die, ranks. And uh, I know you've seen No Time to Die, so we'll see where it falls on the list. Um, you've ranked them all um, from worst to best. So yes. um, at the very bottom, at number 27, is uh, you know a, a non-Eon one, one of the unofficial Bonds, but you have Casino right. Royale, 1967. Let's run, let's run through these rapid fire. We'll be here all day, right. but a re just real quick. Why is Casino Royale, the, the 1967 non-Eon version at the bottom? Just for execution, a lot of ideas. It's Austin Powers, maybe 30 years before Austin Powers. It tried to spoof the Bond series. 
and it had like five directors. It's an interesting museum side piece to check out, but it's really not. Uh, it's, it's really not a good movie. Yeah, a big cast, but um, not Austin Powers, Powers did it way better. All right, yeah. uh, number twenty six, The Man with the Golden Gun from nineteen seventy four. It's uh, there are three more movies that I'm not a fan of, but it's always uh, tough to separate the bottom three, as it were. The reason why this one is in that spot is it's the least entertaining. Christopher Lee's a good villain. He deserved a much better script. Uh, Britt Eklund is Mary Goodnight is a poor Bond girl. Uh, she 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 just doesn't work as a competent agent in the field. And it's Moorhead still yet to find his feet as uh 007. He's not as comfortable in the tuxedo in this one. Yeah, other than Christopher Lee's Scaramanga, um, it's really not much memorable there. All right, number 25, Moonraker, 1979. Uh, Too silly. It's like, hey, Star Wars. Hey, you know, hey, Star, you know, uh, Jaws has a girlfriend. It, it, it's, it's too outlandish, which, uh, you know, it, it's a shame because this is probably the last one that Roger Moore did where he still looked young as you know relatively young as 007 um right. there's a lot of spectacle it, it can be an inter it's an entertaining film on some levels it's not uh it's by far not my favorite and ranks near the bottom all right number 24 uh pierce brosnan's worst one die another day from 2002 yeah on many ways it felt like it was uh like a clip show that a lot of reference it was the 40th anniversary of uh dr no and there were a lot of references to previous Bond movies. It's the most outlandish. It's a shame that it wasn't more successful because if it was, I think Halle Berry's Jinx would have gotten a spinoff series. I wish she had. Got, I, I would have. I would have uh, gone to see uh, Jinx in a movie. She, I mean, she was she was that good. She was that fun. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't work. And then number 23, uh, A View to a Kill from 1985. You said, obviously, you've already said you love the Duran Duran title song, but as a movie, not so much. There are things to like. Christopher Walken is good. Grace Jones is fantastic. The song is awesome. Roger Moore's probably five years too old to be 007 in this movie. And he said that he his retirement was cemented when he realized that he was older than uh, Tanya Roberts' mother who played, she, she played his paramour. It's like, when I'm older than the mother of the woman I'm trying to romance, that's when I know I need to get out of it. And there are scenes where it's obvious that it's not Roger Moore, it's a stuntman who looks nothing like him. So that's why this is in that uh, world as far as ones that I'd rather not watch. There you go. And then number 22, uh, the worst of the Daniel Craig movies, Quantum of Solace from uh, 2008. It feels like more like it's just tacked on. Like it, it, it feels like it was tacked on to Casino Royale, and it, the from the villain's plan, the villain's is not that impressive, and it just it doesn't work, especially after how great Casino Royale was. It it, it couldn't exist without Casino Royale, and doesn't even really exist with it. Sort of the definition of that sophomore slump for Daniel Craig. Yeah. You're right. It's hard to follow Casino Royale. And then Skyfall after it, it's like, you know, it, it, it just looks so weak in comparison to both of those bookends on both sides of it. All right, number 21, The Living Daylights from 87. Kind of a departure from the Roger Moore era. They tried to make it a little more serious. Lack of a strong villain. Joe Don Baker's really not good as Brad Whitaker. He has, uh, like, models of, you know, different, you know, uh, dictators in the past. It's like, do you have a model train set? Do you still live in your parents' basement? 
Um, and you could tell that the series was in transition, that it didn't exactly know where to go. There were enough uh, Roger Moore fingerprints. There was enough of maybe pre-Brosden fingerprints on there, too, that it was tough for Dalton to really make 007 his own in his debut. Yep. And then number 20, Live and Let Die from 1973. Again, we mentioned the McCartney song, um, amazing as a song, but as a movie, it's eh, it's here at number 20. Again, I, what I think, unfortunately, a lot of the Roger Moore movie, the first two Roger Moore movies were more thermometer films than thermostat films, meaning they reflected their times. Uh, Black exploitation was huge in the early 70s. Live and Let Die, you have an African-American villain for the first time ever. I like James Seymour as Solitaire. See, he's a good henchman, um, but there's a lot of blandness in this film. There's not a lot of excitement that you would come to expect with 007. Just like the man with the golden gun had Kung Fu during the Kung Fu era and Moonraker had space during <laughs> post-Star Wars, another thermometer film. And despite some excitement here and there, there's a car chase but you know, and a boat chase, but it's, it, it's not a great movie. Absolutely. Well said. Um, and number 19 Diamonds Are Forever, 1971, mm -hmm. a famous title song, but the movie itself was, you know, not one of Connery's best. But I guess people tuned in because he was back in this one. It was his return, yeah. right? Also known as I'm doing this for the cash. He actually <laughs> took his fee that he got and he set up the, scholar, the Scottish Educational Trust, which benefited the arts. So even though he got a lot of money for this film, he put it towards a worthy cause. Unfortunately, his salary took a lot out of the special effects budget. So this was the first of three movies in a row where Bond wasn't really big. I mean, yes, there was Blofeld and yes, lasers in space and this, that, and the other thing and uh, an interesting cast on some levels, but it's the weakest of the Sean Connery films. And you, you can feel the tone that if Roger Moore had been in this film, it wouldn't have missed a beat. This feels like really the first Roger Moore movie, even though it has Connery in the starring role. Absolutely. All right. Number 18, we have another Connery, but this is a non-eon version. Your, I guess your second non-eon unofficial. Yeah. Never say never again. 1983. Great title. Number 18. Loses points because you miss a lot of the trappings. No gun barrel logo, no 007 theme. And uh, so it's, you're like, Ooh, it's not a Bond movie, but it kind of is. I enjoy Connery's portrayal. Also, it's basically the Thunderball script rewritten because of rights that we're not going to get into and who had credit for this, that, the other thing. So it's kind of a knockoff. You don't need to see it with the exception of the fact that Sean Connery's awesome and his final turn is 007. Kim Basinger's ridiculously beautiful and is a very good uh, Bond girl. Uh, I want to say Barbara Carrera pay, plays Fatima Blush and she's a very good villainess. So there, there are a lot of good elements in it, but it, it, it's, it, it's a movie that you can easily skip. Didn't Connery's wife come up with the title because he, yes, said, he, would never, he would said he would never yes. return. So never say yes. never again. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and lo and behold, he did. He yeah. was all, you know, he, he almost came back or he was approached to come back for Albert, Albert Finney's role as the gameskeeper in uh, Skyfall. He did say never at that point in time. 
That would have been cool because now, mm-hmm. obviously, rest in peace, Connery. That would have been cool to see him one last time. All right, number 17, um, Pierce Brosnan's iconic Golden Eye from 1995. As you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the more important ones in terms of maybe saving the franchise, like if it didn't succeed, we might not have Bond still today. Yeah, I know I've got this, I guess, below the world is not enough. I could easily, you know, on any given day, depending on the weather outside, flip the two or even put it, you know, a tiny bit higher. Um, it's again, a very important film, because if this movie stinks, then Bond is just a Cold War relic, and we're watching reruns of, you know, 007 movies. The Daniel Craig does not exist without this movie doing the business and the reception that it gained. Yeah, and she had Sean Bean, you know, a future game. Yeah, Sean Bean's fantastic. As Trevelyan, the villain. in this movie. Yeah, and... and, I think uh, he gets killed in all of his movies. (laughs) Yeah. By the end of uh, end of the first yeah. season, sometimes, um, yeah, Goldeneye was. Uh, it's hard for me to separate the video game from the movie at this point because you you basically play out the whole thing. But it was as an iconic. That was almost like Super Mario level of of fame, uh, important games. And a nice debut. Nice debut. Wow. Yep. Yep. All right. And then number sixteen, you have uh, Daniel Craig Spectre from twenty fifteen. The 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 most second most recent one. Yeah, just, uh, you know, and I would actually, you know, in, in retrospect, I mean, a, a, tomorrow I could easily put this below Goldeneye because it, the whole uh, having to tie, you know, tying this movie in with the other t- three really kind of ruined it, it for me on that level. Christoph Waltz is okay as Blofeld. He's not great. The whole Dougie evil relevation or, you know, revelation, you know, le- you know le- le- late in the film undercuts as well there's a great fight on the train though and you know there's something about bond no matter which bond fights on a train whether it's roger moore against jaws sean connery against red grant or daniel craig in this one i think the guy was born to fight on trains and uh it's i mean it's it's an interesting movie but uh it's you know it's it's not my favorite uh in the daniel craig uh five pack you know, I, I can hear it in your voice as we go through this and you're talking it out. You're thinking, man, Gold, GoldenEye was more important than Spectre. I should have switched. switched yeah, <laughs> I should have. I should have. Ugh. Well, you know what? When you're ranking, what, 26, 27 movies, uh, there's yeah. some some of them in the middle of the pack. You, you, you yeah. can swap the order around. But anyway, it's fun talking about them. All right. Uh, 15, you have You Only Live Twice, 1967. This is the first one. I did a piece last year, Jason, on uh, I ranked all the uh, films of Sean Connery uh, for the series after he passed. I did the same thing for Roger Moore. I probably won't do so when George Lazenby does eventually pass because he only did one. But uh, this is the first in, in it. I wrote about this movie, how this was the first James Bond movie that almost felt like an installment where you had, oh, there's a, something to do with space. That was in Dr. No. Um, you've got Spectre in play. Oh, that's for Mushroom with Love with Underlings and Number One or whatever. You've there were elements of Goldfinger in this with car chases and this, that, the other thing. And you know, instead of the uh, instead of the Aston Martin, you had the little Nelly gyrocopter. You had underwater scenes like Thunderball as well. It, it felt it, it. It's a beautiful film. Um, it's uh, it's probably I guess the first James Bond epic. It has been called. It is Big Bond on you know, as far as that's concerned, but it's the first one of the series that feels like an installment. And you can understand why Sean Connery wanted to leave after this movie made, because it felt like they were just coloring by numbers. Right. And written by Rob Dahl of all people. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> all know, right. He no- was, what, what, uh, on, on that riff, 
he obviously Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He was upset at the adaptation of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But then again, he adapted You Only Live Twice that had no elements of the novel. So Man. turnabout is fair play when you're getting a screenwriting credit. Yeah, exactly. And then when Gene Wilder's in, as Wonka, you, you don't you just leave it alone. It's perfect. <laughs> All right. Number 14, The World Is Not Enough, 1999. Uh, Pierce Brosnan won coming here at 14. Yeah, he's good. Uh, Christmas Jones, Denise Richards. Denise Richards plays a nuclear scientist named Christmas Jones. That sentence gets more ridiculous with every single word you hear. Uh, but, you know, he's very good. Electric King is fantastic. The gentleman, oh gosh, the name escapes me. The henchman who uh, is, he was in uh, the full Monty and then he was in this. Uh, he plays the guy who doesn't feel pain. He's a very good you know, henchman slash minor villain. Um, you've got M in trouble as well. You know, so you've got the danger going on there. Robbie Coltrane is in this movie too, I believe. So it's, it, it, it has a lot of things working for it. Garbage does a great theme song. That was one that I almost wanted to put number 10 on my list instead of Sheryl Crow. But it, the, the, it's a case of the whole of the movie doesn't equal the sum of its parts. For sure. All right, number 13, License to Kill from 1989. Not violent enough. Oh my! From <laughs> taking parts out of bodies to pressurization and chambers, uh, there's, there's, this is Bond as badass as you probably you know have him pre Daniel Craig. Um, where it uh, this was the first movie I believe, due to tax purposes, shot out of Great Britain. So instead of it being an, a James Bond adventure movie, it almost feels like an adventure movie with James Bond tacked on. It feels like again we talk about thermometer films. This feels like Miami Vice, but with 007 in the mix. It's so fascinating how they kind of cross-pollinate, isn't it? You know, it yeah. reflects the time and the other, you know, movies and shows going on at the time. Good good call. All right, number 12, Octopussy from 1983. Many call this the perfect blend between 70s silliness and 60s seriousness. Uh, we've got a great villain, Louis Jardin. Maude Adams is a very good Bond girl, probably because... I think for the first time in a while, the actress who played the woman that uh, Roger Moore romances is within 20 years of his age. I could be wrong, but I mean, it's it, it, so it, there was a there was a stretch in the Moore series where he keeps on romancing these women who are so, by the end are way younger. Octopussy was a bit of a departure uh, from that regard. A Cold War thriller starts in East Berlin with a Fabergé egg, great MacGuffin in play and uh, there's there's a, there's intrigue, there's detective work. Um, there, there's a lot to like about this movie and a great uh, pre-credit sequence with that uh, Astro or either with a jet that comes out of a horse trailer. You gotta see it to believe it. <laughs> As with Roger Moore swinging like Tarzan on a vine. That um, I didn't want to mention, that I didn't want to remember. <laughs> Spoiler alert. All right. And then number 11 here. This is now we're as we're getting close to the top 10. Um, number 11, you have Skyfall from 2012. Um, man, a lot of people, um, a lot of people I know have this as like their number one or number two to, um, for me. Man, I might even have it in my top three or top five, maybe. I thought it was so well done. Why do you think yeah. it sort of slid down your list a little bit? I mean, you acknowledge it's it's one of the great. I All mean, right. when the pre previous list, you had it in your top 10. Um, yeah, I had yeah. What what is, what is it about you that you say it's a great bomb flick, but what is it about Skyfall that sort of slides just out of the cream of the crop for you? I think it kind of suffers because it becomes part of the, uh, it becomes part of the, when Spectre kind of, you know, said everything is connected, it kind of suffered because of that. 
Um, I also like No Time to Die a little bit more. Um, and it doesn't, Skyfall, in my opinion, doesn't rate, uh, you know, uh, with the other elites. Uh, for instance, the Bond girl is kind of M, I guess. There, there's no traditional, there's the young girl that he meets, you know, midway through the film or whatever, and then, spoiler alert, she dies. Um, so there's there's not, there, there aren't, the thing with the Bond series is that you want them to be, you know, kind of, you know, innovative and new, but you also want a lot of the same things. And one of the fixed things for years was Bond has, there, there, there's a, there's Bond, there's a Bond villain, and there's a Bond girl, and there's allies and other people who help out and do stuff in that various film to film. But one of the biggest constants was Bond has a romance that develops during the film in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a Russian agent, whether it's the, uh, the lead henchwoman for Goldfinger, whether it's the mistress of Largo, whether it's, uh, this uh, depressed woman who wants to kill herself at the beginning of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The lack of that kind of robs this movie of a lot of, you know, what one enjoys what when one wants to go see a James Bond movie. Interesting take. Respect your opinion. Um, but I would still I would still personally have it higher on my list just because of basically because we've everything else we talked about in our in the other list. So, you know, Javier Bardem was one of your your best uh, Bond villains. I think you had him in the top three. Um, we have Adele's song Skyfall. Um, that's, you know, very high on my list, too. And then Judy Dench as, as M. And, you know, so like um I guess maybe it's what is it? Uh, some of the parts equal the whole or whatever. Maybe that's the conversation we're having. But what, I would what, what, I would have Skyfall higher because yeah. I think Sam Mendes is a great director. You know, American <laughs> Beauty and Jarhead and Road to Perdition in 1917. All those. Um, I I really dug Skyfall, but fair enough, sir. I want to see. I dug it too. I mean, the thing is, we we're to the point where we're past the dogs. We're, right. we're past the movies that it's like, if it's on, I'm like, oh well, do I want to watch it? This is one that if it's on or if I'm able to see it, yes, yeah. I'm definitely going to do so. I think movies maybe six to 12, because uh, did I have Skyfall 12 or 11? Skyfall, or... you had Octopussy 12, Skyfall 11. Skyfall 11, okay. I would say maybe from six to 12, you've got, okay, you know, you could, it's, it's, it's a little more fluid, so to speak. Pretty interchangeable in your mind. Yeah. All right, well, let's see what's in your top 10 because you gave a teaser that the new one, No Time to Die, is in the top 10, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, you, made, it you, made, you made it this far, hour and a half into this podcast. <laughs> you can wait and see where it is. All right, so number 10, though, uh, before that, is Thunderball, 1965. Um, to this day, when you adjust for inflation, still the top grossing Bond uh, movie ever. I guess you could argue whether that is a function of how awesome Goldfinger was right before it. You know, a lot of times these sequels, yeah, yeah. a lot of their box office is based on the reputation of the, the previous uh, uh, film. Um, but Thunderball itself, also a very, a very, very good Bond movie. This is a movie that you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that because <laughs> there are a lot of great elements in there. I would not say that you, there. there's a lot of B pluses in this movie, meaning that uh, Adolfo Celli plays a very good villain as Largo, but he's not Goldfinger. Um, Claudine Auger is fantastic as Domino, but she's not Diana Rigg. Um, you've got the, the plot where stealing nuclear warheads, very well executed, but it's not blowing up Fort Knox. You've got Rick Van Nutter as Felix Leiter, but he's not Jeffrey Wright. So you've got, you, you've got a lot of 
very good elements in this. The gadgets, are, they, they, he has this four minute breather that he basically is able to survive <laughs> on. And, and it, it, it was so popular in the movie that I think somebody, some nation asked the Bond people, how do you do that? How does that work? And they're like, yeah, it really doesn't work. We just made up the whole thing. No, you don't have four four minutes of basically. It's yeah. No, we don't have four minutes of uh, of oxygen in this little pen. Um, but so there are a lot of great there. There are a lot of very cool elements in this one. And what I like about Thunderball, what makes it a top ten film, it's easily rewatchable. I, Skyfall isn't as rewatchable for me at this point in time. Probably because M dies. Um, probably because. Bardem takes out the teeth thing that's kind of out there. But uh, Thunderball is easy to rewatch, easy to enjoy. It oh, is. and Fiona Volpe, played by Luciana Paluzzi, steals the film. She is the ultimate villainous henchwoman, uh, minor villain. She, that was 55 plus years ago. We still haven't seen the equal of her. Wow. Yeah, it is. When you think of a blockbuster bond, you think of yeah. Thunderball. And for the long, shout out to my... Buddy Ben Kaufman, also a Bond aficionado. This was always his favorite movie. So I've always held it in, in high regard in terms of Bond. All right. So for number nine, here we go. No Time to Die, ladies and gentlemen, from 2021. Uh, it comes out this weekend. Dave Preston um, has seen it early. And uh, I want to hear what you think about it. it was, you liked it good enough to put it above Skyfall, above a lot of the other ones. And you have it right. numbered all the way as your number nine best Bond movie of all time. That's high praise, sir. Well, I think it really works as a completion to the Daniel Craig era, and it has a bang-up pre-credit sequence. My quibble with this movie is that I think with a lot of the Craig films, it is a little too long. But if you're going to cut anything out, you're going to lose some valuable stories. So it, it's, uh, you know, the fantastic from uh, Rami Malek, I wish they introduced him earlier in the film. Um, I think it was Ana de Armas from Knives Out is in this one as an agent. We could have used more of her in this film, but it's a fantastic story. And Daniel Craig really takes, you know, he, he leaves you no doubt by the end of this movie that he is Bond and this is his role. And this has been his journey from Casino Royale when he shows up in the Czech Republic and gets his second kill to this movie where he may have to save the world one more time. And uh, so it's it, right now, this is 009 on my list of films. 009, nice. And of course, as we mentioned before, Billie Eilish does a, a really solid job on the theme here. It'll get stuck in your head. Um, and uh, so I want to know, um, you know, without giving away the ending, because people are going to watch it this weekend. Huh. Um, but, you know, it is, it, it is a, a major, how do we say, swan song for, um, for Daniel Craig's Bond. Um, do you... Do you think this, the fact that he's bowing out after this, everyone knows this was his last one. Right. Um, do you think the way they leave the character and the way that, you know, Craig is now gone, um, do you think this opens the door for, you know, how do you see it being recast going forward? I think they, perhaps they, re, I, I would rather they not reboot the series because as with Spider-Man, it's, it's, and Batman, it's nice I don't know what it is with the 21st century where we have so many movies that are origin stories. And it's, while it's cute, it's just nice to enjoy James Bond adventures in medias res. Is that the, if that's the correct term? Um, I, I hope that they find the correct Bond actor to do this. And I hope they, you know, give us a traditional caper story like we were, you know, like we had, you know, back during the Brosden era and the Roger Moore era and even in the Connery era. 
Um, who knows where they go from this, but uh, the way that this one is written, the way that the five movies are constructed, uh, there's no question that Daniel Craig is the Bond of the 21st century. He has a definitive story arc and you move on. You know, it's, it's whereas, as I said previously, you could easily say that, oh, Brosnan and uh, Dalton are playing the same guy or Moore and Lazenby and Connery are all the same guy with the same adventures. They just look different, you know, because they're played by different actors. The next Bond will be a different type of Bond. Now, along those lines, they've been talking about making Bond a woman. I would be all for, there's a new 007, a, uh, a new female agent, uh, Nomi, in this one. I would not mind a spinoff series with her. I would actually be cool with a spinoff series of Ana de Armas as a young agent, as a kick-ass you know, agent who takes names. You don't need to make Bond a woman to have a strong female protagonist. And uh, just like I would have loved to have had Jinx as, as a standalone series. Halle Berry can still do it, I think. She's not that old, so. But I, I, I would, uh, look, moving forward, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do, and, and I look forward to it. Yeah, it kind of ties into our conversation we mentioned earlier about how, you know, of all, of all franchises, it's the one that, you know, it was danger of being seen by some as like a dinosaur in the post Me right. era. And that, like you're saying, maybe, maybe the way, you know, Craig's arc is officially complete now. And so maybe, you know, they can, this is the, the white, the slate clean moment to do a female bond, like you said, or an Idris Elba, you know, a person of color. Um, and, and maybe have like, even if it's like 008 or a different 00 something, but um, who knows what they're, what they're going to do, or maybe they'll stick to traditional. But, route, I mean, but, but the thing is, the thing is, what makes James Bond 007 work in that manner is that even though Daniel Craig was a different Bond, so to speak, than Connery, mm -hmm. still has his martini shaken, not stirred. Right. He still has, he's, they still have a lot of the similar character traits. Yep. So again, and we don't want to lose all averse. of those callbacks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not averse to uh, spinoff agents, but you know, Bond, Bond is Bond and he has 007 and, I'd, I, I would like to see a future James Bond, whether, you know, no matter what, you know, he is or does and, uh, and, and along with the offshoot agents too. Exactly. There's, you got to keep, no matter how they freshen it up, got to keep some of the archetypes, you know, Indiana Jones still has to have his hat and his whip and a biblical artifact chase or aliens or, <laughs> or something divine to chase that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's like Rogue One. Rogue One right. was a different kind of Star Wars movie that I loved, but right. it didn't, it wasn't a Star Wars movie per se, but it was a Star Wars film. If you know, you get what I mean. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and then um, so there you go. High praise. It's at number nine. Um, number eight, The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977. Roger Moore. We've talked about this a lot already on the list. Um, great song with Carly Simon, written yeah. by Marvin Hamlish. Great opening on the skis with the the British flag. Um, parachute, the underwater car. I mean, so many things we've talked about are already here. So of course, this is at number eight. And I think uh, it was a series that had lost its way. Uh, Connery left, Lazenby left. The first two Roger Moore films were underwhelming. They come back at you with Big Bond, and it's freaking awesome. And even if you're not a Roger Moore guy or girl, you're going to love this movie. It's very entertaining. It is the signature uh, Roger Moore movie. It's not, it's not his highest grossing. That was Moonraker. It's not his best. That's coming up. But it's just, it's his Big Bond that if, you want to know what life was like for Roger Moore's James Bond. You got to see this. And it's awesome to watch. 
It's a good point. Yeah. If, if you want to show someone what a Roger, what the Roger Moore era was all about, that's a really good one to sort of pop on, on the screen. Yeah. Um, all right. Number seven, the one that started it all, Dr. No from 1962, the very first 007 movie introducing Sean Connery and the rest is history. And it's what's great about this is that you see it's the seeds. You, it's not a fully polished series yet. Connery is not fully in comfort, you know, comfortable with the role. And it's not the, you know, it's, it's not as lavish uh, set wise as you will see the series become, but it's a fantastic spy yarn where, and it's almost a detective story. Agent dies, Connery's sent to investigate. There's people trying to kill him. He's got to figure out who the bad guy is and finds the bad guy. And there's Ursula Andress coming out of the water who looks fantastic. Felix Leiter is played by Jack Lord, who isn't as good as Jeffrey Wright, but he's a very close number two. Uh, there are no real gadgets per se, but uh, Connery uses his wits and, uh, and he's, he's charming. He's got a little bit of everything. And, uh, and it's, a fantastic, it's a fantastic start to the series. Absolutely. And as the original, it's got to be on anyone's top 10. And, you know, I would almost I wouldn't trust a list that didn't have Dr. No High. I, I, I some I, I'm that I'm similarly mentioned Star Wars. I'm, I'm sort of the same way. Like it's it's when people throw in. I mean, I guess Empire Strikes Back probably is number one, but the right. first one has to be at no at number two at the very least maybe even yeah. number one I, I see why certain lists like the american film institute have the original star wars as as the highest you know it's it's the one that invented it all we wouldn't have all these characters without that and mm -hmm. i think in hindsight once you've seen the sequels and you know uh, you've seen all these other mm -hmm. bonds it's easy to forget the importance of the very first but just like raiders of the lost art gave us indy or star wars gave us luke skywalker dr no gave us James Bond for the screen. It's got to be high. And, and Dr. No also shows us a lot of the trappings of the spy craft, whether it's Connery taking a piece of hair out and putting it over the closet to see if someone has uh, broken into his thing or seeing so good. Uh, the communiques with in between agents in the field and stuff like that. So there, there's it's uh, fans of the Americans. I was a big fan. What I loved about the first season of the series was that you saw a lot of the nuts and bolts of spy craft from dead drops to you know, listing devices to, you know, a lot of little things that, uh, because, you know, spycraft isn't all about gadgets and crazy car chases. There's a lot of nitty gritty and you get that with Dr. No, I believe. All right. Absolutely. All right. We're nearing the top five. Number six, we have tomorrow never dies, 1997 Pierce Brosnan. So gold, you know, golden eye, obviously, you know, gave a resurgence here, right. brought it, kept it, not only kept it on the map, but, you know, brought it back powerful um i re i still remember my bro twin bro and i renting tomorrow never dies i guess on cable hbo in the early, yeah. <laughs> semi early days and it made an impression tomorrow never dies uh why do we have it at six i just i i like a lot of the elements of the story um i like the fact that bond he just it's not just a bond girl but the asian agent uh is uh, someone that he relies on and who saves his bacon and uh so you've got that i also like the motorcycle chase where they're handcuffed and they're doing that whole thing. I think it was inspired by a very bad chips episode or something <laughs> along those lines. I like the, I, I like the fact that Bond's past comes back to haunt him. Terry Hatcher plays a former paramour who winds up being killed by the villain. Uh, there's a lot to, there's a lot to like in this film. The song is great too, uh, by, uh, you know, um, uh, by Cheryl Crow. Uh, it's that, that's why this hits number six for me. Definitely. And that big helicopter finale. Yes. 
Um, but all right. that guy Stamper who sucks. <laughs> You've made your uh, opinion clear yeah. on Stamper. <laughs> all yeah. right. We've reached the top five. For your eyes only, 1981. Um, why do you have this up here? I mean, is this, I mean, <laughs> this is one of the essentials. Yeah. It's a fantastic Cold War thriller. And after really a lot after the spectacle of Moonraker and the spy who loved me it was a nice down to earth uh, film. Roger Moore is a little bit older, shows his age, but that's kind of okay in this. And he is a world weary agent. Um, there's uh, you know, again, there's, uh, they're looking for this attack that uh, national security is involved. Um, there's no super duper car chase. He's driving around in some mini Naturally, there's a ski chase scene because you got to have that in some of these Bond films. Um, there's underwater stuff as well. Um, I was at Carol Bouquet or Carol Bouquet plays um, uh, Melina Havelock, who is his uh, who is the Bond girl. She's bent on revenge. There's just a lot to enjoy about this. And uh, it, it has a great Cold War feel to it up until the end when he throws the ATAC off the cliff. Spoiler alert. That's detente, comrade. You don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have it. Yeah, they, I, I was it's, 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 a, it's a great line. I was hoping you'd, you'd uh, quote that line. That's the one thing that comes to mind from that. Um, cool. Um, forging ahead, number four, a uh, film we've referenced in high praise earlier in this conversation, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, 1969. The sole entry from Mr. George Lazenby, but a very, very memorable one. Fantastic film that uh, I think it's... There are those who say that OHMSS would have been the best movie had Connery been in it. I make the point that if they had made the movie with Connery, they would have tried to make it a big bond and focus less on the story. What I feel makes this such a good movie, Jason, is that it's so close to the story and it feels so real. And I think that a bond grieving over, okay, spoiler alert, a bond grieving over his dead wife Connery doesn't feel like a griever, so to speak. Right. George Lazenby is much better in that role. Bond captured and trying to escape and being hunted down by Spectre agents down a hill. Connery, I think, would just pretty much kick everybody's ass in, in Spectre and, you know, and, and blow it up and then leave. Uh, Lazenby, you, he's very realistic as a Bond on the run, as a Bond who is fearing for his life. And it's a fantastic story fantastic elements they really do the novel the source material justice and uh i again my biggest bummer is they didn't he would have i wish we would have had a world where he comes back and does diamonds are forever and it's a semi-revenge plot or there are revenge elements in it it's not a direct sequel but he's depressed because he lost his wife and he's got another case and he finds out that Blofeld's involved and he does battle again with Telly Savalas. So much to like from Diana Rigg to Telly Savalas uh, and George Lazenby, whom I have met. Picture, do we have that picture up? Can we show that? Um, but <laughs> I just loved it. And uh, I actually watched it last night. And just the, the scene that nobody talks about in the film is the one after James Bond gets married at the end, spoiler alert to Tracy, and he's saying goodbye. He's already had his goodbye with Q and his new father-in-law. And Emma's had his scene at this wedding. And he is about to get into his car. And he, they're about to drive away. And he sees Miss Moneypenny. And 
the flirting history between Connery and Moneypenny and then Lazenby in this movie has, has had a certain element to it. And he waves to her and then he throws his, his hat to her like he threw his hat on the hat stand so many times before as Connery and as Lazenby and she catches it and she cries and God, that's an awesome moment. That just, you're just like, damn, that's just freak. Oh God. That just, uh, that's just, uh, that's just so, oh, the fact that they did that there really, that is such an underrated moment in that movie. And this movie I think has a lot of awesome moments that are, you know, underrated and properly rated too. That's why OHMSS is number four. See, odd job wasn't the only one that could throw a hat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know what? It's funny. I, I wonder if the fact that it was that it was a one and done for Lazen B yeah. um, might sort of maybe adds to the allure a little bit on these lists. You know, it, it, it sort of helps it stand out, you know? Um, all right, cool. Well, we've reached the top three. Um, number three. From Russia with Love, 1963, um, the, the second film right after Dr. No. So Sean Connery's back. And man, if you haven't seen this, please put it on. You know, I, I feel like maybe there's some young folks that, you know, they they go back and they watch Goldfinger and they're like, OK, I've done my due diligence. I know what Bond's all about. No, you got to go back. And yeah, Goldfinger will, is is the best cream of the crop. But I mean, come on, you got to go back and watch From Russia with Love. It, it is it is right. I think it's right up there neck and neck with Goldfinger as some of the best stuff that, that the series oh. ever did. Jason, I'm actually going to say that this is the best spy film of the series. Like Meaning a straight spy movie, yeah. Yes, international intrigue. There's spies. They're on the train. There's they're looking. They've got this lector decoder. He's dealing with a Russian agent, but there's Spectre involved. There's some uh, the, there's some great fight scenes. There's a lot of uh, tension, a lot of drama, and you could easily make the case. I think this was Connery's favorite of the ones that he made. He may not, he may, I think he said that he had the most fun while making Thunderball. He was in Nassau for like three months or whatever, but this was his favorite of the films as far as story. And this, this is the one that while Dr. No gave the series a nice springboard, this is the one that really cemented the series as a keeper because Russia could have, you know, not been well done. It was very well done. Great ensemble acting, Pedro Armadera's, uh, as uh, his uh, man, uh, uh, Kareem Bey, uh, Tatiana Romanova is played by Daniela Bianchi, who's fantastic. Uh, you've got Kronstein, who's this the, the, the planner guy. You've got Red Grant played by uh, Robert Shaw, who is awesome, who very well could have been a great 007 in his own right, had circumstances been different. And he's so good and it's fun yeah. watching him a year exactly a year before the sting and like 12 yeah. years 12 years before jaws um um as quint but man he's, he's so great. good he's so good he's here great. he's great he's menacing and connery is a f he is much more assured than he is in dr no and he's not as jaded as he might be in thunderball he's he this and goldfinger sean is at the peak of his powers and it's and it's it's a little, it, it's it has it, it has a nice little romantic ending when he has to when you know again spoiler alert at the end they're in the gondola and she hands him he, she had to pose as his wife uh, Tatiana Romanova did and she hands him the ring back he's like yes all government property must be returned and it's it, it's a cute ending that uh, that we would see it's amazing all the Connery films uh, Doctor No ends he and Ursula Andress are in a boat. This movie, they're in a gondola. Goldfinger, he and Honor Blackman are on an island, naturally in the middle of the Caribbean. 
Uh, in Thunderball, he's in a life raft. Same case with uh, You Only Live Twice. And he's on a cruise ship in uh, uh, Diamonds Are Forever. I think even in Never Say Never Again, he's near a pool. So there's something with Sean and water. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> Rush With Love, great film. Love it. Absolutely. Highly recommend. All right. Number two, uh, you have... Uh, a great movie. Um, yeah. Really, re- talk about the definition of reinventing a franchise. Casino Royale from 2006, the very first Daniel Craig one. And to me, like I said earlier, I wasn't sure when I first heard they were casting him. You know, you see the, well, they flip the script of him. He gets to walk out of the, on, on the beach out of <laughs> like a Dr. No flip. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't quite sure the blonde bond, you know, he's, and, but this, this movie made me a believer. There, and there is a lot going on, too. Uh, I love the beginning uh, pre-credit sequence. The black and white was a really interesting way to open this film. Um, and I'm glad they were able to get the rights to it because it is a great source novel. It was almost a, a novella. It's, it's, it's a, it, I believe it was Fleming's shortest of his novels, and it was the first one that he wrote. And it really sets up the character, and they do take some liberties like I said, a Baccarat or Shemindefer, they play Texas Hold'em, which is, again, thermometer films. That's that's what Bond does. Bond reflects the times as much as he sets the standard. Um, Eva Green as Vesper Lind is fantastic. Uh, she is one of the better, uh, she she probably would have made uh, you know, numbers in, in my top five if we were to rank the uh, Bond girls. She is so good in that role, uh, Mads uh, Milliken or Mads 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 Mickelson. He was actually Mads he was actually Mickelson. just just last year was in that uh, Oscar winning foreign flick called Another mm-hmm. Round, where they try to stay you know keep alcohol in their blood system at all times. But but He's the awesome. whole time the whole time I'm watching him, I'm like man, I think of that scene of Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre, is that how you say it? And where he's yeah. where he's got where he's got you know Daniel Craig yeah. strapped strapped to the chair and he, oh it's still chilling. Hey, there there are a ton. I mean. The Daniel Craig Bond was tortured a lot. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's just like, um, you know, it's like, how does he, how is he still, how is he still standing at the end of four films, let alone five? So, uh, but it it, it was, they rebooted the series and they did, and a lot of uh, reboots miss, um, but this one did it flawlessly in my opinion. And really, uh, I I think we've talked about the important films, Dr. No obviously being the first, uh, Spy, uh, really helping the series regain its uh, steam. GoldenEye, in effect, uh, you know, proving that uh, 007 could, you know, work in the 90s post-Cold War. This is another very important film of, because if Daniel Craig sucks, if this movie doesn't hit the right notes and people don't dig it, we don't get the last four. Exactly. It is, And it we is- don't know that everything's interconnected at this time, too. So we're like, hey, it's a cool Bond film. Oh yeah, absolutely. It it really is. It is the the definition of reinvention and uh, yeah. doing a really good origin story. We get we kind of got lucky because what Christopher Nolan did Batman Begins. What it might have been that same year, somewhere right yeah. around that same time. Um, so. finding a way to do origin stories and, and reboot series that people thought had been done to death and really really reinvented them for the 21st century. So yes, Casino Royale, great flick. I remember being a little long, but I did not not like in a bad way. I remember like there was a, enough story there by the time by the time he had dealt with you know Mads Mikkelsen's villain that you still had to wrap up a lot of stuff with Vesper and and a lot of the heartache that he carried on even to this day. So I mean I thought there was a lot of a lot of great stuff in Casino Royale. Um all right that brings us to number one after 
after our two-hour conversation, uh, we've arrived at the place you knew we would. Goldfinger, yeah. Goldfinger, nineteen sixty-four. Um, it is. If you had to pick one Bond movie to you know show anyone, you know, let's say to to put in a time capsule for you know future generations, if aliens were going to come down and, and need one example of saying what what is this James Bond? It's Goldfinger, right? Oh, hands down, and it uh, it, it captures uh, Connery at the peak of his powers. Uh, it's got a great story, great song, great gadgets, great adversaries. Uh, there are a few missteps. Uh, the, the guy who plays Felix Leiter isn't the best of the series. There's that toweling romper play suit that Connery wears early in the movie. <laughs> but it's, it's. I mean, it, it, you, you said it perfectly. I think while Russia may have been the best Bond film that Connery made, this is easily the best Bond movie that he made. And this is easily the best movie. It's, it's entertaining on so many levels. And there are so many, uh, it, it took Bond to the next level in such a way that the producers for years found themselves trying to equal it, where you had the larger than life villain, the silent uh, henchman who's very deadly, the uh, uh, female character with a name that might not be completely appropriate in 2021 in mixed company, the gadgets, the, uh, the, the ridiculous plan, and then the sting where it looks like Bond is, you know, got, has foiled the villains and this, that, the other thing. And then there's something else that catches him, whether it's, you know, what have you. But uh, awesome film and, uh, again, easily rewatchable, too. Just so awesome. Oh, yeah. From Odd Job to the theme yeah. song to the villain to uh, the best villain line. <laughs> it, is it, it, am I mistaken isn't the first time he said shaken not stirred it might have been it might have been in this movie i don't know if he says it before this movie we'd have to go yeah. back and check right. but i mean it's it's so iconic and to me it, it's and it, it's it's one of those that if you see it on uh, on cable or whatever it's, it just sucks you in right from the beginning because it's got yeah. that great opening action sequence where you know he's he's you know going under underwater with the little tube sticking up you know prevent pretending oh, he's yeah. swinging swimming with the ducks or whatever then you get the I mean, the big line in the bat you know shocking positively shocking boom here comes the theme song with the gold graphics and then then we're off to the races like it is it is it is like it is the quintessential bond in so many ways so and it's fun too i think you know i mean i the, the best Bond movies are fun. And even though there is some seriousness to it, oh, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, you know, there's tragedy and this, that, the other thing, but it's a fun movie. Uh, Goldfinger is fun from beginning to end. From the very beginning, as you mentioned, when you see that duck or whatever that is, and all of a sudden he pops up to at the end when he's got the parachute and he's got uh, Miss Galore and he's like, this is no time to be rescued. And he pulls the parachute over them and it's just boom. And it ends and it's just stuck. Uh, so freaking, and it's it's such a cool movie, and it, it it really is the again you you're spot on. Aliens show up outside of the obvious questions. We'd be like, hey, here's a James Bond movie to watch. Exactly, that's the one. Uh, well, thanks so much for doing this, Dave Preston. Um, you know, enjoy your sports reports, and obviously, but um, but yeah, high praise. He he had no time to die. Um, in the top ten at number nine. So everybody. Check it out this weekend and let us know what you think of Daniel Craig's final entry and uh, uh, check out all of the lists, all of these lists um, that we've gone through um, on WTOP 
Com. Hey, Dave Preston, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I didn't know we would go two hours, the, the length of a Bond movie, uh, but uh, it was worth it. It's 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 the, one of the most iconic, high, highest grossing franchises of all time. And you were just the man to break it down. <laughs> Jason, this never happened to the other film. <laughs> all right, we'll talk to you later, sir. Thank you. Be well. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.